0: I'm Lauren and I'm a veterinarian.
1: I'm JJ and I'm a veterinary technician. And
0: you're listening to Introvets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to Introvets Podcast. Hello. Snack Episode 3.1. Woohoo. Today we are going to pick up where we left off in Episode 1. We were talking about compassion fatigue, and we had talked about the symptoms, how you recognize it, the risk factors, and we had built all the way up to what the fuck do you do about it? (laughs) And that's what this episode is going to be all about. Mm, JJ and I, yep, finally, right? (laughs) JJ and I are still at the veterinary conference. We are also recording this episode from our hotel room. So again, if you notice changes in the audio quality compared to normal, that's why.
1: Random water sounds or people walking—it's not haunted. At least we hope not.
0: Mm, I mean, you know, I don't think we can guarantee it's not haunted. Probably not. Probably not.
1: <laughs> okay. Hopefully, there's nobody in the water tower. <laughs> I I can't I can't <laughs> with that. That's every time I turn the sink on, I'm like, oh, what if it's body water?
0: Oh. Mm-mm, like the, no, like the girl in the tower uh-huh. at the at the, uh-huh. at the San Francisco hotel. Yeah,
1: that's the oh, one.
0: Whoa, I can't deal with that Mm-mm. story. Okay. Last time <laughs> we were talking about <laughs> compassion fatigue. Mm-hmm. So I am super excited to talk about the interventions for compassion fatigue because so many of them are super duper doable. I worry Some of the reasons that the part about what to do about compassion fatigue is left out of wellness talks is that it requires some change. And um, so vets, staff members, and management all sort of have to change to Mm -hmm. react to this, which is, like, I feel like not a popular topic in veterinary medicine
1: change. Well, they have to change the way they think about things.
0: Yes. 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 Self-change, mental flexibility and creativity. Veterinary professionals are extremely capable and creative, but we are stubborn as fuck. Mm -hmm. And don't any of us want to change Mm -hmm. anything ever, Mm -hmm. right? We want to have a system. This is how we've always done it. This is the way we're always going to do it.
1: Yeah, that what you just said, we've always done it that way. Mm -hmm. That's a... That's not good. We're
0: going to have to throw that in the trash can. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to get mentally flexible.
1: We should have thrown that in the trash can anyway. That just shouldn't apply to anything.
0: Probably should have. Probably should have. Okay, well, so let me tell you this. Once you recognize symptoms or signs of compassion fatigue in yourself, you got to react rapidly, okay? Yes. We talked about how if you leave this... uh, unaddressed, if you don't address the underlying problem, it is going to worsen and uh, it is going to continue to snowball. You have got to do something to get out in front of it. So if you are, you know, listening to the first episode and you're noticing yourself, you really have to intervene pretty rapidly.
1: Yeah. Speaking of someone who uh, has kind of been through a lot of these things, I wish that there was awareness and also what to do about it back when I was a baby tech, because it was only about maybe two or three years into my career after being licensed that I started experiencing early signs. And I ignored them. Mm. I thought it was just, I'm working a lot. I have more than one job. I'm tired. I'm going to be tired. Things will get better when I, I'll i get married and I'll, I have, my husband will help with income so I won't have to have more than one job. And I'll just find a clinic that's a little bit more slow pace. And I said those exact things. And the people that I'm working with actually laughed at me. I didn't know why at the time. I do now. But um, that was my plan. I'm going to, you know, move to another city, find a, a slower, maybe like country vet that Doesn't see as many patients and is open for as long as hours as I was used to working. And everything was just going to be perfect.
0: Okay. How did that work out?
1: I didn't
0: at all. It didn't work out.
1: I should have also known another sign was, um, so I quit that job in October. I was supposed to start working again as soon as we got back from the honeymoon. We got married in December. And I really kind of didn't want to start working right away. Uh, it, I did find a job and start working in February, but that was a whole month that I procrastinated it.
0: Yeah. So you didn't feel that joyfulness, that excitement about going back to work, that fulfillment
1: Mm-mm.
0: where you always had before?
1: Mm-mm.
0: Yeah.
1: I would stopped feeling some of the fulfillment probably in the last year that I worked before I moved, but... I was thinking it was just, I'm tired. There's a lot going on. I'm about to get married. There's, you know, a lot. Yeah, moving to a whole other city. There's there's a lot to be stressed about, and it's just that, but not so much.
0: Well, hopefully we can help people kind of avoid uh, those experiences, the negative experiences that you've had, by kind of showing them how uh, an intervention plan might go for them. Now, Mm -hmm. creating an individual action plan to address compassion fatigue is super important. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, but the very first thing that I want to address is management changes to the veterinary hospital. Okay. The reason I want to address that first is that it is my personal belief that compassion fatigue is an endemic problem in our profession. And there are certain variables that, uh, predispose veterinarians and veterinary staff to developing compassion fatigue that aren't controllable, okay? Uh, we, we practice in an emotionally charged environment and field. That's not going to change. However, what can change is some of the management practices that accidentally, okay, accidentally make the problem worse, all right? We want to try to change the addressable things. You're never going to be able to say, Pet owner, be less emotionally reactive for me, please. I mean, people have tried it. That's not going to work, okay? (laughs) Again, that's like telling me stop being anxious. It's not going to work, okay? So we can't address that. We can't prevent all animals from having um, a, a traumatic event. We can't prevent ourselves from being exposed to scary situations. All of those things are guaranteed to happen, and we cannot eliminate those things, Okay. But what we can change is the management practices. So I want to give you some information about burnout in general. Remember that compassion fatigue is a type of burnout that is unique to caregivers, okay? So when individuals start to experience burnout, they generally begin to withdraw and then disengage, okay? There are management practices that can promote employee engagement. If you promote and support your employees, you can reverse the disengagement and make compassion fatigue slow down, okay? Again, you're not going to prevent it necessarily. You're not going to take it away with doing these things, but you can stop piling on. So that's why I want to talk about this first. So in normal people, the level of career engagement that they experience lies on a continuum, okay? And if you think about burnout is at the bottom of the barrel of, of employee engagement. And then if you think about the other end of that spectrum is high engagement, high drive, excitement about being at work. Most of us kind of oscillate up and down that continuum depending on what all is happening in our lives. Okay, we slide back and forth. Highly engaged individuals are energetic and optimistic about their work. They accomplish goals, They experience connection in the veterinary community, and they find their work to be extremely meaningful. Now, we have studied this, okay? This isn't just me saying this would be super great. These are literally research studies that show what workplaces can do to gain high engagement in employees, okay? Those workplaces with highly engaged employees tend to provide sustainable workload. We talked about last time how having a An unreasonable workload contributes to compassion fatigue. So providing a sustainable workload. Offering choice of control to both your veterinarians and your technicians. Now, what this might look like is, on the veterinary side, a choice of control about how you're going to manage diseases, okay? If this is within the accepted scope of practice, let the individual vet decide how they're going to manage their cases, right? Let the veterinarians decide which clients they're going to work with. Let the veterinary technicians decide which veterinarian they're going to work with. Let the veterinary technicians dictate their schedule. JJ is having surprised reactions, okay? This is uh, this is peer-reviewed data. This isn't me just uh, running off at the mouth, okay? <laughs> Recognizing and rewarding achievement is extremely important. And treating employees with fairness and respect, okay? Now, when I'm reading this list, this is not a high bar to rise to, Okay. A sustainable workload, some control over what they do, recognizing them when they do a good job, and treating them with fairness and respect. I mean, I I feel like that's a low bar. Mm. And yet, when I think about <laughs> when I think about veterinary clinics as a whole, and I've seen a lot of them, been in the profession more than twenty years, I've worked as a relief that I mean, I have seen it all. Yeah, you know, we as a profession uh, need to improve in these areas. Okay, a little bit. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. We need to, we need to improve. Okay. So we dance, dance engaged employees. That's how to keep engaged employees. Okay. Let's talk about disengaged employees. So disengaged individuals are exhausted and negative. They are going to be ineffective if the, if they're work, they're not going to be able to get their job done as well. They feel disconnected. They don't have a sense of connection to the practice or to their coworkers and When you're disengaged at work, you feel that the rewards you're gaining from being there are not sufficient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's pause right there for just a second and think about the mass exodus of veterinary technicians and veterinarians from our field. They are saying you're not paying us enough. Okay. If we look at this a different way and say, uh, just like clients perceive value, right? It's not really about the money. It's about the value above a certain dollar amount. Quality of life becomes way more important, right? Mm -hmm. Now, we should be paying a living wage. That's a problem on the support staff end. But if you're hemorrhaging veterinarians from the field, that probably means that we need to look at non-monetary reward as well. Okay? Now, that's an opinion of mine. So, listen.
1: Pizzas, pizza lunches aren't going to cut it.
0: No, we're not. No pizza in the break room. I mean, offer pizza. Like, that's fine. I think it's become a cliché. But it's not going to, du- you can't duct tape it back together with some pizza <laughs> or, or like candy, you know, or like a lunch and learn or something like that's not, that's not going to work. So workplaces are in danger of experiencing disengagement when the workload is unsustainable, okay, when employees don't have control, when there's no fairness, and when they experience value conflicts. What does that remind us of?
1: Moral distress.
0: Moral distress, right? Moral distress, aka value conflict, okay? Mm -hmm. So value conflicts, decrease engagement. They also predispose your staff to having compassion fatigue. What can we do to fix that? Well, we can have open communication among the staff about what's important to them. Mm -hmm. If the staff is afraid to come to you with problems, if they're afraid to say, I don't think that patient care has been handled appropriately, If they're afraid to say, uh, I witnessed a medical mistake, okay, and and we need to correct that. If they're terrified of bringing any of that to you, that's going to create a value conflict. It's going to decrease their engagement and it's going to put them at risk.
1: So the individual employees, they don't really have control over these things. This is more directed at upper management and owners.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah. So... Your average veterinary technician who's not in a management position probably has limited ability to influence the decisions that management makes. So really, truly, this section of this podcast is directed at my office managers, my medical directors, and my owners. So if you're in one of those categories or you're in some other title, some position where you have some authority at the place you work... Bringing this to the attention of management is going to be important. Just know that if you were in a management position, you have a tremendous ability to impact all of the variables that we talked about earlier, which are risk factors. So if you have a really high emotion client coming in, you can reduce that vet's workload for that day to make up for it. Or if they come in and act a fool on the regular, you can get rid of that client, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If you know that a particular staff member is having major issues in their personal life, maybe they're going through a divorce, maybe their uh, parent just died, you can help them by easing some of the burden of their schedule. Now, that shouldn't be a unilateral decision. You need to initiate a conversation about that with them. But open the door. To have them say, here's what I really need, right? So mm-hmm. It's all about communication. Uh, we we need to stop in our profession unilaterally deciding the way to be, that everyone needs to be a cookie cutter way, that we all need to just pull our pants up and, and get going. That's damaging the profession. It's It's damaging the individuals and we're losing people from it, not just from things like suicide, but... Things like just being like, fuck it, I'm, I'm out. Like, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm leaving the profession, right? Mm-hmm. So if we want to keep our profession going, we have to make it sustainable. We have to make it a choice that people can actually continue to make and remain healthy. Absolutely. That's my, that's my opinion.
1: I've been in situations in the past where myself and other employees felt as if the clinic was put before our own personal safety and in some cases our health and that's not that that definitely falls under the moral distress
0: yeah it's a value conflict when that happens Mm -hmm. when you feel like you know veterinary practices have to make money but you know and there's always the bottom line but when the employees start to feel that the money that the practice is bringing in is more important than their health uh that is a a bad situation. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. It it definitely can make you disconnect really quickly and
0: disengage, mm-hmm. right? And it puts you it, it puts you at risk. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. That mm-hmm. moral distress puts you at risk for compassion fatigue.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. There's also been situations where you try to put forth an effort for process improvement, mm-hmm. but I feel like there needs to be also another side of the coin of you know asking are we okay (laughs) because a lot of us aren't you
0: were uh, related to me before the podcast you know kind of a a story about how um, you have had an experience before where management was really good about asking about processes and procedures what can we do to make Checking in for boarding easier or, you know, what can we do to uh, make an exam room flow better? Mm-hmm. Those are great questions to ask. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the thing that I would challenge my practice managers, my administrators and my bosses to consider is, is adding a question. And that question is, what can we do to show you as employees that we value you? What can we do to best support you? And I think that, that just asking the question is probably going to be therapeutic for mm-hmm. people, right? You, now, you do have to create a safe a safe environment where people feel comfortable answering it. Mm-hmm. And then you have to be non-reactive
1: mm-hmm. it's to a the trap. answers. It's a trap.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so you, that that question can't come from a trite place. It has mm-hmm. to come from a place of truly caring. Okay, but but that would be my challenge to administrators is to say, um, not we're going to unilaterally decide what everyone needs for their mental health, but hey, guys, let's have a for real conversation about this. What can we do to support you? And and let's think outside the box. Maybe it's educational development, right? Maybe we need to improve our um, EAP employee assistance program. Okay, would mm-hmm. you guys be interested in? Us uh, providing, you know, five, six sessions with a therapist a year. Uh, uh, my very good friend, um, a veterinarian uh, in Alabama, is doing that for her staff currently, right? Mm-hmm. No excuse to not do it. She's not a huge corporation. She's a tiny practice. But she gives that as an EAP for her for her staff, right? Mm-hmm. If she can do it, there's no excuse for anyone to not do that kind mm-hmm. of thing, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, her, her staff, I perceive, is very bonded to her. Not just for that reason, but because that's the kind of stuff that she does to show them, I'm invested in you, right? Mm -hmm. I'm invested in you. We're in this together, and I value you as a person. You're not just a warm body.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you need to have an open enough, a safe space for people to feel comfortable to not only say that they have made a mistake or that they have um, seen something that needs to be reported, but also to say what they need, because if they don't feel that, they're not going to they're not going to tell you. Yeah. Some issues that are, are common in a lot of clinics where it's almost like a front versus back situation like this receptionist the, versus okay. medical or kennel versus yeah. medical, that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah,
0: so like some infighting.
1: Yes. Yeah, clicks.
0: The, clicks. That's clicks. What you're describing.
1: But also some issues with um, communication mm-hmm. and not feeling valued by either, you know, departments and that sort of thing. And I mean, there was negative things going on in both areas that needed to be addressed, but it was nice because one of the ones we had, there was, it was just by a fluke where there was no upper management present. And I think people felt more comfortable. And I'm not saying that my current um, management wouldn't feel open to hearing what anybody had to say that day i think that sometimes people feel intimidated and but more people participated basically and i feel like we were able to make some breakthroughs a little bit In you know this is what i need from you you want this from me here's what's important from me and maybe you haven't considered that and the th- if you're you know it's a give-take relationship. If if it's all, you know, give, 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 you're going to start resenting. And that was what was happening. And um, on the flip side of that coin was because of that, because of the resentment, there was less, um, people were less apt to be like, yeah, I'm going to get right on that and help you out. The teamwork was failing. And so on one the other end, it was perceived of y'all don't care that we're slammed. So it kind of snowballed, but we were able to work a lot of that out, and things were tenfold better because we felt safe to talk about things and get a little you know frank about things.
0: Yeah, that I mean I think that's a great example, and it it I think that it might be that that exact type of in-your-face meeting might not be right for every hospital, and you would have to sort of, you know, look at your individual demographics and how people interact and how people get along, um, you know, to decide that. Um, I, I, you know, am even thinking maybe, you know, asking staff members anonymously what it is that they need, compiling uh, lists of things that are similar between requests and then presenting that so that no one person is having to really step out on a ledge there because uh, mm-hmm. that's a scary place to be. But I think it's great that the clinic, uh, you know, experience that you had where, where everyone was, you know, they did feel very safe to to share. Uh, I think if we could all create spaces like that, that would be great. And uh, you know, in the absence of that though, there are some other strategies that you could use uh, anonymous questionnaire. Mm-hmm. Um You know, keeping it truly anonymous, like the spirit of that is that you don't attempt to find out who said what, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, making sure that you pull any personal references out of that and and things like that before you present it.
1: So we have uh, talked a lot about what management can do, but what are some things that we can do to help ourselves?
0: Okay. So like we talked about earlier, creating a personal action plan to manage your own distress is what I'm going to recommend. Now, this is going to look different for everyone, okay? The first thing that I want to talk with you about is going to sound familiar, and that is that we need to institute positive self-care habits. (laughs) Okay? Self-care is the foundation of compassion fatigue management, okay?
1: Drink some water.
0: Drink some water is on the list. There's a lot more to it than that, okay? So... (laughs) Now, uh, positive self-care is more complex than a lot of people realize, so we're going to talk about all of these things. Um, The one thing that I want everyone to remember before we dive into this is that instituting a personal action plan for distress management and practicing good self-care requires one important thing, and that is a willingness to change, okay? Okay. So I just want everyone to remember that, okay so let's talk about it <laughs> JJ what do you know about self-care?
1: It's not all manies and petties.
0: that's right, not manicures and bubble baths. I mean, those things might be involved depending mm-hmm. on you, but that's not the extent of it no yeah
1: no you need to you need to take care of just basic needs like drinking water and yeah making sure that you Get a lunch break. Um, Take your
0: medicine.
1: Yep. Take your medicine. (laughs) Take it on time. Yeah. But also things like making sure you have time at home, away from work, doing things that have nothing to do with work, things that make you happy. Mm -hmm. Because if you get to the point where you don't want to do the things that make you happy, then
0: you're in trouble. Yes. So you really nailed that. Uh, And I think that... For a while, the media was portraying self-care as all, as you said, manicures, pedicures, bubble baths. Treat yourself. Like, treat yourself, yeah. Um, what do they call that? Uh, uh, retail therapy? Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And depending on your individual situation and what you like, maybe those things are involved. But when we're talking about self-care, we're actually talking about our, meeting our own basic needs. So if you Google self-care or you do a Google Scholar search for self-care, you're going to see lots of articles and lots of like wheels of self-care and lists about self-care parameters. There's even checklists. So you can download checklists and score yourself on how good you're doing with self-care. All of them are a little different. So what I did is I pulled some main ones that I think especially apply to our field. Okay, the first two things that I want to talk about are sleep and rest. And how those things are different from one Mm -hmm. another, okay? So, sleep. People need, on average, six to ten hours of sleep a night, okay? The amount of sleep you individually need varies depending on things like your age, your sex, your genetics. The life stage that you're in, all the other shit that you've got going on in your life, okay? Mm -hmm. So, it varies. But your individual need, and I'll tell you that I'm on the upper end of that. I'm an eight to ten hour a night person, I've gone through periods of my life where I tried to, like, be tough like a Marine and only do four hours of sleep. You know how I felt? Like shit, mm-hmm. okay? That that doesn't work for me. It works for other people, not for me, okay? So recognizing the amount of sleep that you individually need is important and then stick to it, okay? Mm-hmm. If you have sleep disorders like sleep apnea, that's a big one. It's very common, but other ones. Get them checked out and get on treatment for it. Mm-hmm. Now, when I said sleep and rest, right? Rest is completely different from sleep, okay? Rest is the time that you spend engaging in things that you enjoy and or relaxing. If you, as a veterinary employee, are spending all of your time either working, cleaning the house, preparing a meal, or sleeping, you're not getting adequate rest. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to look at your schedule and think outside of the box about how you can achieve the rest that you need. But just know that sleep is not the same, and you have to have both.
1: Yeah, there's a a, a tool that I have learned to use recently. If you have, um, I not, not everybody has an iPhone, but I'm sure there's tons of apps. But um, one that I've started utilizing for about the past probably year is you can set the phone to let you know when it's your set bedtime Mm -hmm. and just prepare. Usually what I do is set it for about half an hour before I actually want to go to sleep. That's my wind down time. That's usually when it's like, okay, stop what I'm doing and do whatever preparations to go to bed and get in there, get to bed. I may not go to sleep right away, but I'm there. And I have far more chance of having a good night's sleep if I end up in the bed and not on the couch because couch sleep is after about 43 is not comfortable for your your, your orthopedics. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't work. But using that and also I have my alarms they are set for certain days of the week and I've got it set up to where my bedtime correlates to where I make sure I get at least seven hours. Mm-hmm. Because if I get less than seven hours, I'm not going to be a pleasant person. If I get an extra hour, if I get eight hours, great. But minimum is seven. So it's set up to where I get at least that. And it's keeping me on track because in the past, I didn't realize that there's sometimes there where I would sit in there and watch TV and get engrossed in something, or I would be doing some resting activity, like reading a book or something. And then before I knew it, it was so late that I was only going to get four hours sleep. Or five hours sleep, and that's not enough. So doing those things has kept me on track, and I've met my sleep goal just by doing that consistently.
0: You created a self care ritual, JJ. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. I did. Okay. The next one I want to talk with you about is nutrition. Okay. That now, one. now I'm not going to lecture anybody about <laughs> dieting. Okay, that's not what we mean. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nutrition, well, a big part of it for vets and veterinary technicians and staff is. Uh, actually fucking remembering to eat, man, Mm -hmm. you know, like schedule time to eat a meal.
1: Remembering to eat, remembering that you have to pee sometimes.
0: Okay. When we're thinking about nutrition, you know, I kind of get nervous about people who, they kind of live off of the break room pizza. Okay. Not great. Every once in a while. Sure. Okay. If, if all you have time to do is grab a slice and and then get back to work, that's not a, a good positive self-care habit okay nothing wrong with pizza if you want it but we need to make sure that we get vitamins and minerals and things too okay Mm -hmm. drinking water as JJ said and then I I just want to tell everybody that like I struggle with this because I have so many arguments with my therapist about this okay because I have some specific nutritional requirements it's a long story but anyway (laughs) when I first started seeing my therapist She would get on to me and say like, you know, you can't keep doing this where I would not eat breakfast because, you know, eating breakfast first thing in the morning really kind of makes my stomach upset for the rest of the day. And that's not fun to deal with when you're trying to handle clinical cases. And then Mm -hmm. I would very often work through lunch or get like 15 minutes and shovel it down and then again be sick feeling for the rest of the day. So it would really be like I would get all the way to the end of the day. And then have my one meal, right? Mm-hmm. Right before I laid down to go to sleep to do it all over again. Mm-hmm. And she was like, This is bad. Like <laughs> please, you can't do it. She referred me to a nutritionist. She was like, we can't do this. And um, you know, one of the big mental barriers that I had to get over by being willing to change was this idea of I can't leave my patients waiting. I can't leave my owners waiting. I can't my therapist would get mad and say, like, But why the fuck can't you at 10 a.m. go to the break room, drink a cup of water and eat an oatmeal like really quickly, right? Like it would take 10 minutes for you to do that. You can't take 10 minutes. And I would be like, you don't understand my life. You don't understand what it's like. And she would just look at me like, no, you don't understand what it's like. (laughs) You don't understand that you have to take care of yourself first. You crazy person, you know. Now I've gotten to the point where I'm like, she was right. Go to the break room at 10. I mean, unless it's a fucking super bad emergency. I mean, then don't do it. But like, if it's a normal day, it can wait 10 minutes for you to handle your basic needs. Mm -hmm. Same thing with like, holding it all day and like not peeing mm-hmm. not peeing for like 12 hours at a time like mm-hmm. no that's not good for you like let's let's stop doing that
1: I actually thought that I had an issue with like too frequent urination about a month or two after I took the break from working yeah but it was that I was peeing when I had to pee. <laughs> Like I actually like scheduled a doctor's appointment, and yeah. he's like, "No, you're not needed. You're not, everything's fine."
0: Right. It's not normal to have to pee one time a day. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. That I I, I was like because I was literally I was only peeing three times a day. Right. That's when I got up. That is
0: not a when fine I got
1: home number. from work and before I went to bed. Like that there was
0: normal amount. Yeah. Of pee. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you're probably dehydrated.
1: That, I definitely was. <laughs> I can guarantee you, oh, I was. So yeah.
0: Okay general life enjoyment is an important self-care category. If you think about it and you're, you know, in a situation where on a day-to-day basis, on a weekly basis, you're not engaging in any activity that's just for the fun of it or just to bring joy, that's dangerous for you. Mm I mean, it's not about, you know, being a snowflake or whatever. Like you're supposed to enjoy life. Like why the fuck are we here? if We're not going to enjoy it. (laughs) Like that's dumb. Okay. Engaging in activity that makes you happy, okay? Joyful movement. Now, if you do not like running on the treadmill, don't run on the treadmill for exercise. If you hate riding a bike, don't fucking do that. When I teach Zumba, sometimes I have people come up to me and say, you know, I really don't like dancing. I don't think this is for me. And I'm like, then why the fuck are you here? Like, (laughs) this is not about punishing yourself with exercise, okay? Mm -hmm. It's about joyful movement. So if you're not engaging in enough physical activity, at least 30 minutes a day, that doesn't count running around at work. Okay. We're talking (laughs) about 30 minutes of joyful activity. This goes with rest and relaxation. Okay. And then one point that I wanted to bring up along these lines from my therapy training. Okay. Uh, In Fundamentals of Counseling, we had to read this book called How to Fail as a Therapist. (laughs) It's a good book. Many of the themes in the book are actually relevant to veterinary medicine because we counsel so many people just Mm -hmm. with like no training at all. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, one of the things about maintaining positive self-care habits in the book is avoiding competitive sports. Hear me out. Of course, I do compete in sports, right? I'm a competitive powerlifter. But it presented a well-researched opinion that if you engage in uh, significant helper-type work, okay, if you are a caretaker role, you're at risk for compassion, fatigue, and burnout, that you should consider avoiding competitive exercise because that sets up a situation where it's very easy to also develop burnout about your exercise or activity of choice. (laughs) And so if you're going to engage in competitive sports, you also need to do some other thing that makes you happy because you also don't want to get the identity problem with that, you know, all of these things and Mm -hmm. they can kind of feed off of one another. So I just, I'll just bring that up because I know a lot of veterinarians are also competitive athletes. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a reason For that, (laughs) having to do with perfectionism and inner drive and stuff. So just be cautious if that is the activity that makes you happy. Just know that, you know, you could uh, eventually burn out with that too. Just got to be careful. And so then the last self-care item I'm going to feature involves asking for what you need. As a person, you have needs and you deserve to have them met. Part of the way that we need to ask to have our needs met is through establishing appropriate boundaries. I think that boundaries have also been receiving a lot of media attention, right? Having boundaries is also a common thing that I hear talked about. But uh, again, I feel like people misrepresent what boundaries are, so we're just going to go over it really quickly. Boundaries are not rules. Boundaries are preferences. They are focused on gaining information about relationships Boundaries are not about making an arbitrary rule and then inflicting punishment on people. That's not what it's about. A boundary is something like, I'm not available to be contacted on Saturdays and Sundays about work. If someone then does that, there's a natural consequence, which is hopefully you're not going to answer your phone because you have it on silent Mm -hmm. or programmed to not ring through, right? Mm -hmm. And if work violates that boundary then that gives you information this place can't meet my needs i need to move on right Mm -hmm. so that's really the most appropriate way to utilize a boundary it's not about rules it's not about punishment it's about gaining information about how people are going to try to manipulate you out of your boundaries and then you know pushing back boundaries are also not firm rules okay so maybe there's an extenuating circumstance where you're like, actually contact me on a Saturday about that was important. Okay. Maybe there's an emergency with the clinic. Maybe it's on fire or something. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's a reason. That's an appropriate reason. So that, uh, that is a way that boundaries can be flexible, right? We never want to establish a firm arbitrary rule and then meet out punishments, especially ones that seem nitpicky or, you know, dumb. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, Strongly recommend reading the book, Not Nice, that Dana, the therapist, recommended. That Mm -hmm. is a great book that talks a lot about establishing boundaries and, you know, kind of like avoiding the fear that we get anytime we say what it is that we need. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Yes, you can talk yourself out of the fear of getting in trouble. <laughs>
1: yes, and you're not responsible for other people's feelings. So. That's
0: right. Other people are allowed to have feelings. You don't have to respond to them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Amazing book.
1: Don't be an asshole, but yeah.
0: Right. Don't be an asshole, but stand up for yourself mm-hmm. in a polite way. And at the same time, if people get bent out of shape about it, okay, shit, that sucks.
1: That tells you a not lot about problem. them.
0: Exactly. It's just all feedback. It's all information. (laughs) Okay, now we could spend a whole episode talking about boundaries and we're not going to. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should have a boundary episode later. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's kind of self-care in a nutshell. We didn't hit every single point, but those to me are the main things. If we're focusing on a plan, at intervention and prevention, um, nurturing those self-care habits is the first step. If we're not doing those things, we really can't move on. So this is the place to start. The next thing that I want to talk about is mindfulness.
1: Mindfulness. What the fuck does mindfulness mean?
0: Uh, Well, mindfulness is focused awareness. That's all it means. We are aware of the present moment. And here's the important part. Without judging or evaluating what's happening. Okay? Mindfulness has become a buzzword, just like self-care. And it's sort of been co-opted by the diet and fitness industry, which really bugs me um so i super want to talk about that <laughs> um mindfulness is identified as a tool to reduce caregiver stress okay in studies mindfulness originated out of eastern religious practices so we have kind of stolen that it's not the greatest. Is it kind of like meditating uh meditating is part of mindfulness meditating mm-hmm. is one tool that we can use to to be mindful you, you might hear it associated with a bunch of different things. I'm going to tell you what it is not. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mindfulness is not, doesn't have anything to do with dieting. Okay. It's not about dieting. It's not about denying what your needs are. It's not about being tough. It's not about deprivation. It's literally just paying attention to what is happening right now and not having a reaction about it. So if I was going to do a mindfulness exercise, just And there's tons of them, but if I was going to do a mindfulness exercise right now, I would just suddenly pay attention, draw my focus down to the bottom of my right foot. How does my right foot feel just sitting on the floor? And I wouldn't think like, gosh, I'm sitting weird. I need to sit up straight. I wouldn't think like, ooh, my feet feel weird. Oh, I need to put socks on. (laughs) I was just
1: in here thinking, hey, Mr. Foot, how do you feel like, what do you feel like sitting on the floor? Right. I'll have a toe. Yeah. There's toes there, but my shoes, oh, I'm wearing my pawpaw shoes. Foot's kind of sweaty. It's hard, to, it's hard to do that. It's
0: hard, right? It takes a lot of practice. But learning how to be mindful gives you immediate feedback about how you are doing, right? So if you're being mindful and you practice it, then you can say, gosh, I'm feeling very anxious right now, right? I feel tightness in my chest and back. I feel trepidation, maybe about an upcoming procedure, right? You can be honest with yourself about it. You can acknowledge it, and then you can let it go, okay? So that would be an advanced practice. But first, got to start by feeling what your foot is like. What you wouldn't want to do is feeling really anxious. God, I always do this. It means I suck as a person. There is something wrong with me mentally. You see how I, ju- I judged. I was able to correctly identify how I felt, but I judged myself. And so then um, that uh, probably made my anxiety worse. <laughs> so.
1: Or what I've done for the past several decades of just, okay, my back kind of hurts a little bit, but I can't think about that right now. I have to do A, B, C, and D. I'm going to ignore that until it gets, you know, three hours later. And it's like, okay, okay. I should have taken Advil three hours ago. Now I'm going to pay for it for the next four days. That sort of thing.
0: Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, of let, you know, we're going to focus on how we're feeling in the moment and get your body used to, get your mind used to accessing how do things feel? How am I doing? Let's just do a self-check real quick. So there is a ton of research on mindfulness. I'm not going to be able to present all of the studies on mindfulness, like just not enough time. (laughs) Okay. But I have collected a selection of articles to tell you about. Okay. So in one study, oncology nurses who participated in a mindfulness intervention reported decreased compassion fatigue, burnout and stress, and they reported increased life satisfaction. Doing the mindfulness intervention increased their ability to be mindful and it also increased their self-compassion. Mm. In another study of traumatic bereavement volunteers, mindfulness was positively correlated with compassion satisfaction. That is kind of the opposite of compassion fatigue, okay? That means I uh, am engaged in my work, and I feel that I'm helping people successfully. And it was negatively correlated with compassion fatigue. So what that means, negatively correlated, as mindfulness increase. Compassion fatigue decreased. A 2015 study of social workers suggested that participation in yoga and mindfulness programs prevented decreases in compassion satisfaction. Okay. So it prevented compassion fatigue and it improved practitioner perception of difficult clients, mm-hmm. which is a big, I mean, That's like, a biggie. look, if I could do some yoga and, and then like handle my chronic, uh, client we'll call him Mr. X that stresses me the fuck out to deal with. Like, I mean, come on, like that's a uh-huh. great plan. Okay. Win, win. In, uh, in 2014, a literature review published in the journal of healthcare chaplaincy concluded that mindfulness interventions, especially those which included a loving kindness component, increased self-compassion among healthcare workers. A loving kindness component would be something like, I wish you well. Just just something that simple. That paper also concluded that developing self-compassion using mindfulness-based stress reduction, that's MBSR, that's a therapy technique that we Mm. use in psychotherapy. And other mindfulness interventions for healthcare workers uh, reduced perceived stress and increased the effectiveness of clinical care. Okay, so you can increase the care that you provide to patients by engaging in mindfulness activities. This is pretty Pretty profound. Mm-hmm.
1: So what if you feel like mindfulness, meditation, those type of things are woo-woo. Okay. And you're totally be like, no, I ain't doing that. Okay. What options do you have?
0: Sure. Okay. Well, so there are a lot of ways to participate in mindfulness that don't necessarily uh, involve traditional meditation or yoga. Okay. Mm-hmm. I do just want to say really quickly that I think a lot of people fear Going to a yoga class, this is my opinion, because yoga has another Eastern religious practice, okay, Mm -hmm. that we've kind of co-opted. I feel like on social media, you see yoga as being performed almost exclusively by white, thin women who are doing impossible poses. And people get the idea that that's what yoga is.
1: That's certainly been my perception. Right.
0: But it's not accurate. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Any person of any age and any background and any body size can do yoga. And in the yoga practice, so two fabulous ladies, and there are many more, but I'll just focus on, on these two ladies, Jessamine Stanley and Dana Falsetti, are like these pioneers and they're like plus size yoga instructors with thousands and thousands of followers, okay? Uh, people think yoga is like expensive and like, elite, you know, you have to be really good at it to go. None of that
1: is true. You got to get some of them fancy. What is it? of whatever pants.
0: No, yeah, you can wear whatever pants you want. <laughs> Maybe it's not jeans. That'd be uncomfortable. But, you know, mm-hmm. something you're comfortable in. You can also do yoga at home. So there are great resources, and I'll post these on social media too. Okay, but so in defense of yoga, it is not an exclusionary situation. And if you find yourself in a yoga class that is exclusionary, <laughs> Do a different yoga class. Man, like go to someplace else. Okay. Yeah. I'll post some local resources to Huntsville too um for people that are interested. Okay, so what can you do if you don't want to do that though? Again, this is a selection of studies. I cannot possibly review all the things, but I wanted to give you an idea of what's available. Okay, so a 2016 study, which was aimed at addressing the symptoms of stress and compassion fatigue in counseling workers, okay. These were counselors that were working with uh, domestic violence and sexual assault survivors. So, like, really heavy shit. Those counselors engaged in social action art therapy. That would be, like, uh, for veterinarians So, say, like, uh, there was a cause you really believed in. So, you're going to create an art project that promotes it. So, like, uh, we'll just say adoption event at a shelter. Okay. So, you're going to create a poster to advertise that, okay? That that would be an example of the social action art therapy. Doing that significantly reduced caregiver stress, okay? So you could do some sort of volunteer art project. A 2020 study proposed the use of task-oriented self-care, abbreviated TOSC, specifically focusing on sensory experiences of tasks that lie on the opposite end of the Holland Inventory, for improving wellness in counselors. Okay, what the fuck does that mean? Okay, the Holland Inventory is a kind of a test that you can take that says the things that you're good at. So there's six letters and you take a bunch of questions or you you answer a bunch of questions and it's going to give you three letters and that correlates sort of in a loose way with your personality. And then you can use that to match yourself with careers that would work well for you. So I am... S-A-I, okay, and veterinarian and therapist are both listed in that category. So, okay, that's good. Now, if I were going to engage in this practice, task-oriented self-care, I would look at the opposite end of the spectrum, okay? So, I would look and see um, there's like a wheel that the letters put you into. On the opposite side of that wheel, what letters are those, And what sort of activities are involved? So, for example, it would be like a mechanic, right? Being a mechanic would be the complete opposite of what I would be good at according to this test, okay? But I could take tasks from that category, working on a car, and incorporate the sensory aspects of that to help improve my own stress. So maybe that means that I do some sort of project working with my hands outside, Right. What do I like to do? (laughs) Gardening. Mm -hmm. Right. So I could get out there, get my tools, put together a garden box, you know, and that sort of thing. That will be clinically proven to reduce stress because it's the opposite thing of what I typically engage in at work. Uh Fascinating study. Horticultural therapy. That just means working with any type of plant. Okay. Mm -hmm. Horticultural therapy has been shown to um, improve self-care in grief counselors and the practice created improved awareness of grief in themselves and others. So just doing the horticultural therapy, the grief counselor was able to be more attentive to how they were feeling and how others were feeling. So it helped them with themselves and with their job. So there's a positive correlation between autonomous sensory meridian response, that's ASMR, and mindfulness ASMR is like those videos that you see on TikTok where people are talking like this. Mm-hmm. And there's like specific little crinkling noises and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Or maybe someone is stocking a shelf and it's very satisfying the way it's like uh, clack, clack, clack. Dude. Yeah.
1: Clean talk.
0: Cleaning talk. Clean talk's my jam. Well, if there is an auditory if There is an response, auditory okay. it, yes. Like, and it's very calm and everything. Yes. So people who experience this... ASMR, it uh, they describe it as like a buzzy or tingly type feeling that mm-hmm. they get from it. Okay. So if you're someone who experiences that from certain types of stimuli, then that is a type of mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. Coloring complex geometric patterns has mm-hmm. been shown to create a meditative state and decrease anxiety. Adult coloring book. Here we go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this That's one of my go-tos when I'm feeling really stressed out. This particular study focused on mandalas, which is like a traditional religious symbol. It does not have to be that, though it can be any complex geometric pattern. Finally, completing a loving-kindness coloring exercise was as effective as engaging in a loving-kindness meditation for increasing mindfulness and self-compassion while also decreasing anxiety. So if you did your coloring book that had like your loving-kindness component, where, where I was given the example of, like, I wish you well be at peace. If you were coloring that, it was as effective as doing the meditation. Pretty exciting. So again, that's just a selection. There are tons of other ways that you can improve mindfulness um, as well, but those are just a place to start.
1: There's one major intervention that we've yet to discuss. Okay. Go to therapy.
0: Go to therapy. Yeah. Yeah. So... Seeking care with a licensed psychotherapist is indicated if you're feeling symptoms of compassion fatigue. Um, And it can be particularly helpful to seek counseling that focuses on uh, cognitive behavior therapy, CBT. CBT is useful in the treatment of many disorders. CBT treatment is covered by most major insurance companies. So that makes it helpful if you need to utilize insurance for psychotherapy. Cognitive behavior therapy has been shown Uh, in studies to be super effective at combating compassion fatigue. People might think, like, well, why would I go to a counselor to get, you know, help, like, with my job? Mm -hmm. But a lot of people don't know that the roots of mental health counseling begin in, like, the early 1900s with career counseling. That's how, like, the field of therapy started. So going to see a therapist about issues with your career is, like, the bread and butter of therapy right there. Like, that's mm-hmm. that's that's what that's how we got started. Seeing a therapist is really invaluable. Now, the therapeutic relationship is very important. So I do want to say right off the bat, if you're considering therapy, number one, we don't know why this happens. But if you believe that you're going to improve, studies show that you will. If you don't believe you're going to improve, Studies show you probably won't. It comes
1: down to having an open mind.
0: Yeah. So we uh, there's lots of research looking at that on the therapy side to try to correlate that expectation. Uh, they call it the outcome expectation of therapy in, to see if there are other mediating factors and, and it's just kind of up in the air. But we know for sure, repeatedly across time, outcome expectation or how well you think you're going to do is how well you're going to do. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's highly correlated to success in therapy is building a close relationship with your therapist. We call this the therapeutic bond. That's why it's so unbelievably important to make sure that you have a strong connection with whatever therapist you see. If you go to therapy and you meet the person that is going to be your provider and you guys don't click, you need to find a different therapist. Don't wait.
1: Yeah. I experienced this. Um, the first therapist I was ever sent to. hmm perfectly nice human being. Yeah, I did learn things. Mm -hmm. There was some benefits, but the material that I was given was presented in a way that I couldn't really relate. And so I didn't really feel like I was getting as much out of it as I could. And I kind of, I don't know, felt like I was, I don't know, it was hard to read the material because it was just stuff that I could not relate to. And um, it just so happened that the one that I have ended up with is is a lot easier to relate to yeah. and is a good fit for me.
0: Yeah. Finding that good fit therapist is so important and not just because it's more fun to go or anything, but you're actually, um, you know, you're more likely to improve. Mm-hmm. So forming that bond is very important. So cognitive behavior therapy is mostly going to focus on correcting common thinking errors. And I'm just going to list several of the ones that we would potentially engage in. I'm about to feel
1: personally attacked. I know. Gonna...
0: So <laughs> things like all-or-nothing thinking. Okay. Overgeneralization. <laughs> Filtering out positive and only remembering the negative things. Okay. Mind reading or the belief that you can accurately predict what other people are thinking or experiencing. Not accurate catastrophizing so predicting the worst case scenario that's me definitely jj is raising her hand a lot (laughs) um emotional reasoning the assumption that all of the things you feel are rational oh (laughs) i didn't even know that was yeah. that's not accurate okay Labeling, so categorizing people or events based on isolated incidents. So, this would be like if you write someone off based on one fucking thing that happens, okay?
1: Hey, people used to get three shots.
0: <laughs> Fortune telling, predicting negative outcomes, or your inability to cope if something bad is going to happen. Personalization means we blame ourselves for stuff that's completely outside of our control and <laughs> then <laughs> an unreal, ideal which is making unfair comparisons about ourselves and other people. Now, that's just a brief list of the things that you can work on. But um, I mean, reading this list, it's <laughs> when I think about back when I wasn't in therapy consistently. Um, all the things. All the things, right? Except and for the so, one that I
1: didn't know was even a thing. That... <laughs> all the,
0: working on all of these things has been shown to improve Caregiver stress, improved compassion, fatigue.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to also mention that you're not gonna get rid of
0: mm-hmm. yes. it. You won't get rid of them. That's some
1: I think that's maybe a misconception about people that are go to theory that think it's just gonna be like a cure. They're still there. You just learn you can tell them to shut up.
0: Exactly. You can be like, oh, I just engaged in a thinking error and mm-hmm. then be like I shouldn't do that. Anymore. Darn that thinking yeah, area off you fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So what do you do if you can't uh, can't get to a therapist for whatever reason? Are there some self-help books or other related interventions that you can do at home?
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of them. So, and I can post some resources again on our social media. But there's everything from online programs that you could engage in, workbooks, Self-help books, like if you just go like up the road to your bookstore to the self-help section, you're going to see great titles about cognitive behavior therapy for you. You know, and things mm-hmm. like those would be great ones to pick up. Anything um, focusing on compassion fatigue would also be a good a good selection. There are several books. There are even compassion fatigue games and card decks that you could try. Uh, so there's a lot of self-help Cognitive behavior therapy material out there. And a lot of people do find it helpful. If you're the type of person in general that would seek out those things, the good news is you're also the type of person on average who would benefit from them. (laughs) So that's the good news. If you're listening to this episode, you are highly likely to improve with therapy and self help treatment. That is like a definite, I mean, that is research backed Mm -hmm. statement.
1: So if you are correct and you are, And issues like compassion fatigue are unavoidable in the veterinary profession. Mm -hmm. What do you do?
0: Well, that's a great question. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so I think depending on your individual situation and what all is happening in your life, sometimes if you are having bad symptoms and you are doing the interventions that you are capable of doing and you're still struggling then sometimes you have to look at taking a break from the profession, whether that is forever or for a short time. And that's okay. That That's an okay decision to make. And uh, I have a, an example to share with you. A therapist told me the story of her compassion fatigue and break from the profession. So she you know, graduated, practiced. She, she did a lot of different stuff. Therapists almost always start out in... Like, managed healthcare situation, either in addictions or, you know, social worker, like, you know, mm-hmm. different things like that. It's incredibly stressful and almost no pay. It's like terrible, right? So she was in those sorts of environments for years and got so fatigued and burned out and stressed that she stopped practicing for like five years, I wanna say. And she went, to, she became a waitress again. <laughs> she had always like waitressed in college. And so she just decided, like, this isn't worth it. I'm going to go back and be a waitress. And then and it gave her a break. And then ultimately, it was after that experience and that period of rest and recovery that she was able to come back and start her incredibly successful private practice. But if she hadn't pushed the emergency break and stopped what she was doing for a little while, she would not now be in a position to help the number of people. Mm-hmm. She probably would have burnt all the way out and washed out and, and maybe not even be a therapist anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think about that because I knew her years and years after the whole pause in her career in, in going back to waitressing. And when she told me that, I mean, I when I say my mouth fell open, I was like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> like, there is no way you like, you are so skilled as a practitioner, there is no, you would think about walking away from it. Are you kidding? Like, I can't even imagine that. You're so good at what you do. You're, you're so competent, you know, and like, how, how would you ever even consider that you're so good at, at what you do? And, and she just said, well, because I needed a break, you know, and what if I hadn't taken the break? What would have happened? Mm-hmm. If she hadn't taken a break, it would have sent ripples out. In time that would have affected I mean hundreds of other people so anyway I just want everybody to think about that if you are out there listening and you're like I'm struggling and I think I need to take a break but I just can't air quotes can't do it because fill in the blank reasons it's not right I need to be tough enough you know whatever your reason is just know that taking a break is better than not being with us anymore. And yep. we need you to, to stay with us. Whether it's uh we we need you to stay on the planet with us and uh safe and happy. And if that's in veterinary medicine, fine, and if it's not, that's okay
1: too. Indeed.
0: But we we gotta stop losing people.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Way, way, way back at the beginning of the very first episode yeah. of the season. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we talked about poor Sarah. And when we left off Sarah was getting therapy. Yeah. What
0: happened to Sarah? Okay. Well I can provide you with a very favorable update.
1: Good. I like those.
0: So today, Sarah is relieved that she was able to seek mental health care when she was struggling. She reduced her clinical hours for a year to recover from her compassion fatigue, and now she is back to full-time practice. Mm -hmm. She redesigned her work schedule so that she has more time to spend with her family, and she continues to work with her therapist to build healthy self-care habits. Sarah likens her experience with overcoming compassion fatigue to a spiritual reawakening. She said, quote, it was like coming out of a fog. I never want to go back to that again. Sarah believes that education about the dangers of compassion fatigue would have led her to seek care from a therapist when her symptoms were still relatively mild and that earlier detection may have reduced her recovery time. She feels that raising awareness regarding the risks of compassion fatigue in veterinary medicine is essential. She also wants to encourage other veterinary professionals to seek both social support and mental health services when they are needed. Sarah says, quote, reach out and let others know that you are struggling and don't be afraid to see a therapist if you need help.
1: Sarah is right. She is right. Preach, Sarah.
0: If you have stories, questions cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com.
1: And you can find us on social media or on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at introvets.
0: And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Thank you, and bye. Bye Bye-bye.